Okay, let's turn, please, to Romans 11. Romans 11. Still some seats on the ladies' bus trip to Sight and Sound Theater in Lancaster on the 9th for Jonah and the Whale. A remarkable production. Very edifying also. And we have, as you noticed out on the information table, we have three slips if you want to beyond prayer, and we're certainly praying. If you want to do something beyond prayer, the Hurricane Harvey Relief donation, we have the information how to donate through the Red Cross or more, I think, more fitting through Samaritan's Purse, which is Franklin Graham's organization, and the Salvation Army, where things are pretty assured that the full amount, pretty close to the full amount goes to the need, very limited goes to administrative costs, etc. So if you want, it's up to you, of course, ways to contribute. Unless you want to get out and get on a boat or bring a boat. And otherwise, helping by prayer. And prayer does involve substantial help, as we know from Philippians 1, 19 to 20. Helping by prayer, Paul said. I know I called him. Speaking of Better Call Paul, we're hitting the 98th installment of Better Call Paul. Last night's message really focused in on just why this series, why this series at this time. And we'll do a little bit more of that tonight. But that, the 97th installment, had very much to do with focusing on the reason for this series for our time. So Romans chapter 11, and we'll take a couple moments of silent prep. Father, thank you for getting us safely here. We thank you for those who traveled, specifically our Potter's Shed crew, Bill and Stan and Kelly here tonight with us. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of gathering in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus, Soter Panton, the Savior of all. And we pray that as we gaze into the perfect law of liberty, which is the fulfilled Torah of freedom, we may experience that freedom which is where the Spirit is and where the Spirit is transforming, where the Spirit is presenting to us a portrait of the image of the Lord so that we can be transformed into that image. We thank you, Father, for the freedom that we have, which is the power to do good through divine enablement. And we pray that this congregation will truly benefit and that the benefit will overflow to those who are yet without Christ and without hope and to those Christians, too, who are perishing without 
the vision of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. We ask these things and give you thanks for this opportunity, asking also that you will manifest your love and mercy, consolation and power in the area that is ravaged by the most recent hurricane and flooding. We thank you for already for the manifestation of Christ that is occurring there, the divine good that is coming out of a disaster, the manifestation of the love of Christ and the self-sacrificing love that so many are demonstrating in these many rescues. For this is truly a picture of laying down one's life for a brother. So we commit our capacity to you tonight, Father expecting pure and unadulterated grace. For we know that the greatest comprehension comes from confrontation with the person of our Savior through the Spirit and the Word. We thank you for this privilege in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight, this title we'll call Paul Speaks to the Gentiles, and parentheses, and to us. And we'll pick up in Romans 11. There is a pretty detailed study of Romans 11. We have mentioned on Sunday Habakkuk 319a in which the scripture says, the Lord has given to me the feet of a deer that I may walk upon the mountainous places, the high mountain heights, the mountain heights. And that's what we've been doing in Better Call Paul. We've been hitting the mountain heights, the heights of Paul's insight into the mystery of Christ because it's from those heights like Romans 5, 1 to 11, and then again 12 to 21, 2 Corinthians 5, 19 to 21, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, 1 Corinthians 15, 22 to 28, Romans 3, 21 to 26. All these heights are positions that God gives us in order to walk like deer on the mountain heights and see from those places the wider range and the depth and the breadth and the height of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And Romans 11 is the last of those mountain heights that we have been exploring. And right now, having begun with 1021 or 1020 and 21, we're up to 11.11. And Paul is speaking in his fourth rhetorical question. So I, Paul, say, they have not tripped in order to fall down permanently, have they? He's speaking here of those who are the hardened of Israel. There is an election according to pure and unconditional grace. There is a remnant according to the election of grace. If it's grace, it's no more works. Otherwise, grace would no more be unconditional in its nature. It would no longer be grace, as Romans 11, 5, and 6 says. But the rest were hardened, and we've recognized that the hardening process happens not to the elect of Israel, those who have had faith, faith elicited through the hearing of the gospel, But God has allowed the hardening of part temporarily. It's a partial hardening, and it's until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, the pleroma, the totality of the nations comes in to the salvific 
will of God comes into Israel. So he speaks here of the rest that have been hardened. It's insane to think that God forsakes the hardened in Israel because it's precisely to those with hard hearts that he makes the promise, I will take the stony heart out of you. Who is he talking to other than those who have stony hearts? And I'll put a new spirit, a new heart within you, and a new spirit, and I will put my spirit in you, within you, and you will walk according to all of my statutes and ordinances, which we know amounts to love, love of God and love of one another. So I, Paul, say, you see, we've called Paul, and this is what he says, they, speaking of the rest who have been hardened, have not tripped. And he uses two words here. You don't see that unless you see it in the Greek, really. He says, you have not tripped, and the word is patio. They haven't tripped. That means to trip, but you recover without falling headlong. They have not tripped, that's over the stumbling stone, in order to pipto, fall down and be destroyed. Have they? And Paul asks these rhetorical questions, each of which demands an emphatic no for an answer. Paul's most emphatic no, as we know, is meganoito, and I'm using only the English transliterations. Meganoito. He has about 13 of these in his epistles, and he spends a few of them right here. This is one of the heights, the mountain heights, that God has given us deer legs and deer feet to sure-footedly negotiate these heights. That's a great privilege that God has allowed for us as an assembly. They have not tripped in order to fall down permanently, have they? Of course not. Meganoito. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the pagans. The Gentiles. I like the word pagans because it gives a little more shock value to what's occurring here. The pagans are coming into the salvific work of God, into the saving benefit and grace of God to provoke Israel to jealousy. But if their misstep, he uses another word here, misstep, he goes back to Romans 5 here, the misstep of Adam is like the misstep of hardened Israel. If their misstep is bringing riches to the world, only God can think like this. Paul even gets to that in Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the the depth of the knowledge and the wisdom of God. His ways are past finding out. Who would have ever thought of this? Who would have ever thought of the salvific plan of God that through a crucified man the universe would be saved and all humanity saved? So. Through their misstep, their transgression, salvation has come to the pagans to provoke Israel to jealousy. But verse 12, if their misstep is bringing riches to the world, now those riches are specifically what he calls in Ephesians 3.8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's, the, it's not material wealth that's coming to the pagan nations. That's neither here nor there in the plan of God. It is the unsearchable, untraceable riches of Christ Jesus that have come to the pagans 
through God's unconditional grace, through the misstep of Israel. And so as Romans 10.12 says, God is rich to all those who call upon him. And these inexhaustible riches are those in Christ. And if their defeat, he goes on to say in verse 12, this is kind of rehashing, but it's running the iron over again so that we got less wrinkles in our exegesis. And their defeat, and that's the best translation for that word, their defeat riches for the Gentiles... He's basically saying the same thing again. Their defeat ultimately refers, I think, to A.D. 70, their defeat by the Roman, Roman legions, means for the Gentiles, riches, again, riches, the unsearchable riches of Christ. How much more, this is the famous a fortiori argument, how much more will their fullness bring them? How much more will their fullness bring bring them. And that word is pleroma. We know that there's a, play, a pagan pleroma that's expected in eschatology. We know that from Romans 11.25. Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant of the mystery, otherwise you'll be conceited. And people are conceited without understanding the mystery. That all the nations will come in first. The pleroma of the nations, that means totality. That means nothing lacking. That means the totality of the nations or the Gentiles or the pagans in all the times of human history. When they come in, when they enter, John puts it picturesquely in Revelation twenty-one twenty-six. when they enter the always open gates of the New Jerusalem, which is a way of saying entering into the salvific benefits of God in Christ. Then all Israel will be saved. And we know from the biblical math that we've been doing, Pleroma of the Gentiles plus Pas of Israel equals all humanity. Going back again to another high place in Romans 5 where the obedience of Christ leads to the rectification or the setting right of what went terribly wrong among all humankind. Justification of the ungodly. So we know that the Gentiles have a pleroma, but here he's saying that the Jews are expected to have one too. When their pleroma comes in, when the totality comes in, that is when the elect and the rest are saved. What then will be the overflow of the riches to all the Gentiles, to all the nations, to all peoples? Please note here that the Gentiles are destined to have a salvific pleroma. I call it the pagan pleroma in Romans eleven twenty five. But so is Israel. They're destined to have a saving pleroma, a saving fullness. Again, Paul says it as clear as a bell in Romans eleven twenty six. And so, or and then, all Israel will be saved. Israel is first to be chosen in history, but last to be fully saved. The first will be last. The first in history will be the last in eschatology into the saving of God's grace. And the last, the Gentiles, well, they'll be first. And when they enter in to Israel, then all Israel will be saved. All Israel isn't even going to be saved until the full complement comes into Israel, which is the Gentiles, which makes the whole saving group the Israel of God. 
And that goes back to an insight that you might remember years ago. So please note here that as the Gentiles are destined to have a salvific pleroma, Romans 11.25, so is Israel. Romans 11.12 and Romans 11.26a. Verse 13, but now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. And from this point on, he speaks to Gentile Christians. And his whole view here, his whole purpose is unity in the church. Unity. Because there are, I would say, probably at least five churches in Rome. There isn't one big church. There's the weak, there's the strong, there's the weak that despise the strong or the strong that despise the weak and there's a group that's the strong but they don't despise the weak and Paul is trying to unite them in Christ and bring them into a unity in Christ and that's what part of the reason for Romans if not if not in my view one of the main reasons for the writing of Romans but now I'm speaking to you Gentiles and this again is my translation in view of the fact that I am the apostle the apostle to the Gentiles Now, here's an important distinction. Paul, as a preacher of the gospel and as a teacher of the Gentiles, and as the apostle of Jesus Christ to the pagans, he has a policy that he thinks came to him, and it did indeed from Isaiah 52, 15, to speak or preach the gospel only where the name of Jesus had not yet been heard. So he has a policy not to build on another man's foundation, as he also indicates in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, and following through 14, 15, and 16. But on the other hand, when he hears of a church that's already flourishing, it's already been planted and watered like Laodicea or like Ephesus or like Colossae or like Rome, he knows that he has the authority as an apostle to speak to them. And so he does it, and this is why I translate it this way. But now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. In view of the fact that I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I am honoring my ministry. Magnify is used here, but it's simply doxazo. Doxazo means to glorify or to honor. So he says, I'm honoring my ministry by doing so. In other words, I didn't plant that church in Rome. I didn't even water it like Apollos watered in Corinth. I didn't have anything to do with the plantation or the watering of the church. But I do have authority, according to the ministry God gave to me, as apostle to all the Gentiles, to speak to you, to talk with you. And when he speaks to the Gentile Christians, he's also speaking to us. And he's also speaking to Jewish Christians, as we'll see later. But he says, now I'm speaking specifically to you Gentiles, that is Gentile Christians, in view of the fact that I'm apostle to the Gentiles, I'm honoring my ministry by doing so, is what he's saying. That is, by speaking to you, the Gentile Christians in Rome. The purpose of Paul's ministry to the nations or to the Gentiles, or we could say to the pagans, is Romans Romans 1.5. It's outlined initially to bring about the obedience of faith in them. This includes exhorting Gentile Christians to live worthily of the gospel. And there is a way to live worthily of the gospel. 
as Philippians 1.27 teaches, as Ephesians 4.1 teaches. Walk worthily of your calling. And in principle, what Galatians 2.14 teaches, where Paul reproved Peter and certain Jewish Christians in that case, including especially Cephas, because he said he was not walking according to the truth of the gospel. Why was he not living worthily of the gospel? Because he was separating himself from fellowship with the pagan Christians under pressure from legalistic Jews that had come down as a delegation from James in Jerusalem. And because of that, Barnabas even, Paul's missionary partner, began to withdraw. Paul watched it. Paul observed it. He said, now I saw that they were not walking according to the truth of the gospel. So I reprimanded Peter right there in Antioch because he stood condemned. It was obvious he was in the wrong, in other words. And that's Galatians 2.14. So part of the being brought into the obedience of faith is to be brought into participation with Messiah's own fidelity and with the love of Christ. And that's living according to the gospel. Here Paul will essentially take the Gentiles to task in order to prevent them from entering into or continuing in, because they already did enter into it, what I call elective elitist arrogance. God has elected some. He rejects some. He makes some vessels into vessels of wrath fit for destruction. We explained that that's only within history. It has nothing to do with eternal damnation or salvation. But elective elitist Arrogance is an exclusivism that's due to ignorance of the mystery, which ultimately relates to, and I know this is a shocking term, universal salvation. The mystery of Christ ultimately relates to universal salvation. Us, U.S., universal salvation, and us, and the U.S., for that matter. Paul has a message for the United States, for Christians. That's why we're teaching this. Here Paul will essentially take the Gentiles to task, in other words, to prevent them or to steer them off from the course of this arrogance. Romans eleven twenty four to 26 speaks of that mystery. Romans eleven thirty two is the peak of the mountain height, the showing of mercy to all. That's where Paul is aiming throughout this whole thing. Ephesians 1, 10, which is the heart of the heart of the matter. Colossians 1, 20, by the blood of Christ's cross, he reconciles all things in the heavens and earth. Colossians 1, 26 and 27, the mystery of Christ and the Gentiles, Christ in you, the hope of the glory of the Father, Colossians 3, 3, 3, 4, and 3, 11. Which ultimately means, the mystery ultimately means the comprising of all things by the Savior, Jesus Christ himself, where he comprises all created reality in all of its times. So again, Paul did not plant, as he uses that analogy in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 7. He didn't plant the community of Christians in Rome. 
nor did he yet water it, not yet. His policy was to preach the gospel where it had not been preached, and that's why he's headed for Spain, as he tells us in Romans 15. He's headed for Spain. He plans to come through Rome on the way to Spain. He hopes to find edification and support and maybe even material support from the church in Rome in order to fulfill his ministry to bring about obedience of faith where it's never been heard before in Spain at that time. And if he's got a church that's scattered and he's got strong ones despising weak ones, weak ones judging strong ones, and he's got this mess, then he's not going to have a unified church when he gets to Rome. And he's not going to be able to advance his ministry as he could. He's also in the process of making a collection, which is a vast amount of money that he's collecting, for the tragedy in Jerusalem, the saints in Judea who were under severe persecution and lost their economic means of support, lost their, they were ostracized from the synagogues, they were in a, in a state of losing everything, basically. So Paul's taking a collection. A collection from the Gentiles brought to the Jewish Christians in Judea would have been a magnificent, and was, a magnificent show of unity and solidarity between Jewish and Gentile Christians. And so, Paul didn't plant there or water there, but he certainly, according to his ministry, had the right to speak to churches already planted and watered. He is the chief apostle to the Gentiles. He has the right to speak to us. And I let him speak to me all the time through the scriptures and through the word and through the Holy Spirit who inspired him. And so there's a challenge to elective elitist arrogance due to ignorance of the mystery that goes all the way from Romans 11:24 and following. Really, it starts right here in 13, where he says, Now I'm going to speak to you Gentiles. And so in keeping with his calling, which he discerned from Isaiah 52, 15, He preaches the gospel where it's never been preached before, where the name of Yahweh as Savior, as Yeshua, has not been heard yet. He knows that from the scriptures that call came to him in Isaiah 52, 15. Just like in Acts 13, 47, when he said to the Jews who rejected the message, he said, well, since you count yourselves as unworthy of the life of the coming age... From henceforth I'll turn to the Gentiles, because the scripture says, I will make you a light to the Gentiles and salvation to the ends of the earth. He saw his own calling in there. Read it in Acts thirteen forty seven. And in Romans fifteen twenty one he says his calling came to him through Isaiah fifty two fifteen. But here he's honoring his ministry as apostle to all the nations, to all the Gentiles. My point then is we, the church today, need to be spoken to by Paul with regard to the salvific mercy of God to all. That's why better call Paul. That's why I've been teaching since I got back from Florida 98 times on the subject. 
So Romans eleven fourteen, he says, if by doing so, speaking to you Gentile Christians, I may provoke my flesh. Here he actually speaks of fellow Jews of the hardened kind, his own flesh, his own kinsmen, his own countrymen. If by doing so, speaking to you guys, I may provoke my flesh. These are fellow Israelites in Romans 9.3. Paul's brothers, his countrymen by physical descent. Now Paul knew all Israel was going to be saved, but that didn't cause him to stop grieving in his heart for his contemporaries who were rejecting Jesus Christ, that's still painful, it's grievous, it's hurtful. He still had grief, and it was continual grief in his heart. We all have family members we wish would come to the grace of God. And perhaps we've committed them to God for that purpose, and our hearts grieve until they come around. We know, yes, that in the last day they'll be saved. We know but it's still, we still are grieved, as Paul is. If by so doing, speaking to you Gentiles, I may provoke my flesh, my fellow Israelites, Israel after the flesh, to jealousy. What he's saying here is they might start saying, what are you talking to them for? Or as we said last night, they may be asking, what are you talking to them about? And you see they're doing this kind of thing. And they're starting to see what happens to the Gentiles. And they begin to be provoked to want what they have. They see that they have it without asking for it. They see that they have it by pure grace. And they begin, begin to want what they have. And then Paul says this, and as a result, save some. Now don't stop at this precipice of our mountain. We're only taking from here, this precipice. We don't stop. A lot of exegetes stopped here and said, see, some will be saved, not all. But we're casting the rope from this precipice up to the peak and setting the hook in the peak. We're going to climb to the peak. We're not some, but all are saved. Paul's ministry by divine calling, though to the Gentiles, is also with a view, a specific view, to the salvation of Israel, as this whole passage shows, and that's the whole reason for this passage. Paul expects, listen, some, the word is tinas, T-I-N-A-S, some to be saved. In fact, let's look at it, let's put it this way. Paul expects some, tinas, of his countrymen to be saved in the very course of this evil age, which is remarkable. It's remarkable that anybody's saved in the course of this evil age. So thank God you are. Tinas, some will be saved in the course of the age. Paul expects some of his brothers in the flesh to be saved in the course of this evil age. But Paul expects all of his countrymen to be saved at the end of this evil age 
in the event called the parousia, the coming of Christ, when every eye will see him, when every tongue will make a confession of faith toward him, that Yahweh is Yeshua, and when everyone pledges allegiance to him, and when, as Isaiah 40 and verse 5 says, echoed into Luke 3, 6, all flesh, Jew and Gentile, together will experience the salvation of the Lord. And again, I'm compelled to cite Psalm 118.23. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Why is it marvelous in our eyes? Because our eyes have been enlightened by the grace of God. So Paul, the principle is Paul expects some, Tinas, of his countrymen to be saved during the course of this evil age. But he expects all, pass, all, to be saved at the end of this age. Eschatological salvation at the Perusia. When, as Job said it, I know that my kinsman redeemer, not just redeemer, it's kinsman redeemer, like Brian Messick's message seamlessly fits into this disclosure. I know that my kinsman redeemer is living. And that at the last, or better, as the last, as the eschaton, as the last Adam, he will stand on the dust of the earth. And the dust is the Adamic ontology of the first man, Adam. It doesn't say stand on the earth. It says stand on the dust in Job 19:25 to 27. I know that my Redeemer is living. And as the last Adam, he will stand on the first Adam. He will stand with Adamic ontology utterly all under his feet. And that I know that in my flesh I will see him. And my eyes and not the eyes of another will see God. I refer you to last night's message where that's fleshed out a little bit more. And so he expects them all to be saved when this evil age ends. When the Redeemer, again in Romans eleven twenty seven, comes to Zion and takes away ungodliness from Israel, from his people. Takes it away. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why wouldn't he come and take away the ungodliness of Jacob? He's here to set right the ungodly. He justifies, rectifies the ungodly. And again, if you want to treat before you go to bed, it doesn't involve food, but it involves food for your soul. Read Romans 4, 5, that God rectifies the ungodly. And then 4.25, that he raised Jesus from the dead to rectify us. And then Romans 5, 6 and 5, 8, that God commended his love toward us when Christ died for the ungodly. It goes a lot deeper than that. We're going to touch on some of those things in a moment. He knows that when the last Adam, Christ, our kinsman redeemer, stands on the dust or the Adamic ontology of the first man, because in 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-seven, the first man is from the dust. The first Adam is from the dust. The last man, the last Adam, Eschatos Adam, is the man from heaven. When the man from heaven, the second Adam, the last Adam, stands, he's, guess what he is? The last man standing. 
when he is the last man standing on the first man and all Adamic ontology has been defeated and put aside, then everyone will be comprised of the second Adam, Christ. Christ comprises all humanity. In Christ, all will be made alive. Now, what I'm saying in these past few messages does not come from commentaries. There's no commentary that says it quite like this because the scriptures are infinite in their creativity and in their way of expressing Christ, manifesting Christ, apocalyptically revealing Christ. And so, what Paul is saying here is that his ministry and his speaking to the Gentiles will be overheard, as it were, by fellow Israelites, some of whom will be saved as a result. In fact, what Paul says to the Gentile Christians in Rome and everywhere else is, you better wake up. God is going to save all of Israel. But he's not going to save all of Israel until the fullness, the pleroma, the totality of the pagans comes in. Now, that very message may be well, well be attractive to some of Paul's fellow Israelites, members of Israel after the flesh, the hardened part of Israel, the hardened part, part of which in his time and ours has been temporarily hardened until the pagan pleroma is all in. Please remember the hardening of Israel is partial. It's even said to be in part, and it's temporary because it's only until the totality of the nations enters. Then the last, the first, will be last. Israel, all Israel, will be saved. But it gets deeper than this, and it gets higher than this at the same time. And so Paul now speaks of making some of his Israelites jealous and thus to save some of them. So I have a couple of wise guy statements, questions to ask. Smart aleck questions. First, does that mean that they're saved by jealousy? Or we may ask, going back to Joshua, was Rahab the whore, the madam of a whorehouse in Jericho, was she saved by lying to the officials of Jericho about the spies that were hiding in the thatch of her roof? Was she saved by lying? And I'll ask a third question. Then are we saved by believing? Or being saved, are we given faith? That's just a few that's, I think I had a teacher once who called me a smart Alec. So apologies to anyone named Alec, but I'm only saying that you're smart. Romans 11:15. for you see, if there, he's speaking now of Israel, katasarka, Israel katasarka. 1 Corinthians 10, 18. Let's consider Israel katasarka. Let's see, one of the things they did. Oh, yeah, they offered sacrifices to demons. Their hardness is a demonic obstinacy, which God is going to reverse. For you see, Paul says, if their rejection, 
means the reconciliation of the world. Now, wait a minute. I had to say, wait a minute here. If there is Israel's rejection is the reconciliation of the world, then is there a contradiction to the great statement on the great mountain height that we've already been on many, many times in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself? What is this thing about the rejection of Israel is the, re- is the reconciliation of the world? It, it, you know what it points to? The fact that Jesus Christ is the Israel of God and that his rejection by Israel was Israel's own salvation and the reconciliation of the world. Who would have thought of that? God thought of it. Who has been his counselor? Who could advise him? What cabinet member would tell him what to do? And I know this is going to take several repetitions for you to get the point here because I'm going down around five roads at the same time. And I found that out today. And it's really occupying 101% of my attention. For if, for you see, if their rejection, now this is referring to A.D. 70 in one way, but retro back to A.D. 30, means the reconciliation of the world. That's cosmic reconciliation, the reconciliation of the universe. What will their acceptance be? What will it mean if not life from the dead itself? Israel's rejection ultimately has to bow to the rejection of the Israel of God, Jesus Christ himself at the cross. His crucifixion was the rejection of Israel. His resurrection was the acceptance of Israel. His crucifixion was the rejection of every one of us in our Adamic ontology. His resurrection was the acceptance to the glory of God by Jesus Christ of all of us in Christ. Now, here's where the mystery of Christ comes in. And I haven't got yet the words to articulate it yet, so pray for me, according to Ephesians six eighteen to 20. Notice that the rejection of Israel means the reconciliation of the world here in Romans eleven fifteen. But in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, that is, on the cross. Is there a contradiction? No. Jesus experienced the rejection of Israel as Israel on the cross. His crucifixion was the rejection of Israel as well as the rejection by Israel of their Messiah. You say, I never, I can't process that. I know. Welcome to my world, my mental world. Welcome to my madness. But let me continue a little longer in my madness, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.13. Israel's rejection means reconciliation 
of the whole world, cosmic reconciliation, how much more will Israel's acceptance be? Paul anticipates the complete and total acceptance of Israel by God, but he also expects the complete and total acceptance by Israel of their Messiah. All of them. All of them. And this will be granted by grace. It's not a reward for someone's believing. It's a reward of Messiah's fidelity for all mankind. On the cross, Jesus became a curse for us. Jesus was handed over, paradidomi, to die for our sins. In Romans 425a. For the sins of the world. And he was resurrected for our rectification, our being set right, for the rectification of the ungodly, which happens to be all of humanity. His death means atonement for the sins of the world. And his resurrection means the rectification of the world, setting right of what went terribly wrong in sin. Israel's rejection means two things. It means Israel is rejected temporarily, as Esau was. When God said, Esau, have I hated Jacob, have I loved? He was simply saying, temporarily, I'm rejecting Esau. And temporarily, I'm electing Jacob, but it's with a view to bringing in Esau, obviously. When Jacob saw Esau, they finally reconciled. What did Jacob say? In seeing Esau, I have seen the face of God. And he saw the face of God at Peniel, and he saw the face of God in Esau. And I was taught as a young Christian by pastors who think they knew the scriptures that Esau went to hell. Esau went to hell. Sold his birthright, that's it, he's done. So God says, my face is reflected in Esau, whom I rejected temporarily. My face is now reflected in him. So I guess I'll throw him into hell. There's a lot of danger in climbing the mountain of the scriptures and settling in on one precipice and setting up your tent and living there. Don't do it. And we're by no means at any zenith of disclosure either. I plan to keep plugging until my last breath. Israel is rejected temporarily as Esau was. And is Israel rejected her Messiah. But the very point of this is that rejection is being reversed in the case of some now. A remnant according to the election of grace. And this rejection will be reversed for all 
when every eye sees him and when all flesh together experience the salvation that comes from the Lord. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our enlightened eyes. And so we pray for the enlightenment of the eyes of our fellow believers, of our family members, of other churches, of other assemblies, of ourselves, of the world, of the unsaved, of the Muslims, of the Buddhists, of the Sikhs, of the Shintoists, of the Hindus. The rejection of Israel is the rejection of Jesus Christ, which was his crucifixion and death. The acceptance of Israel is the acceptance of Jesus Christ, which is his resurrection from the dead or his life out of death which is to be the life of all of Israel and of all mankind who were once comprised by Adam, Protoss Adam. Now, in closing, let's turn to 1 Timothy 3.16 because it's very important in this regard. And I've developed the translation from 1 Timothy 3.16. Then we'll go back to Romans 11. I think the key verse that we have so far in Romans is one we're going to deal with next, which is 11.16. If the first fruits are holy... Then the whole lump of dough from which it came is holy. But the first fruits that he talks about are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus said that means he's not a God of the, the dead, but a God of the living, because all are living to him. That's Luke twenty thirty seven to 38. But 1 Timothy 3.16 says this. It's a poem. It's a hymn, actually. Undeniably great is the mystery. There it is again. The mystery which stimulates true devotion. The mystery of godliness is just doesn't mean anything. What is godliness? It really means being set right by God's grace. But great, undeniably great, is the mystery which stimulates true devotion. He who was apocalyptically manifest in flesh, that's Christ incarnation, the incarnation of God, was rectified by the Spirit. Now we see this word justified or rectified by the Spirit. How can it be that God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, was rectified or vindicated by the Spirit? Because in his death he became sin. So something had to be set right. And he was set right by resurrection. It's the Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead. He was raised according to the spirit of sanctification, the spirit of grace, and so, or the spirit of power and the spirit of love. He was rectified by the spirit that is in resurrection from the dead following instauration or his crucifixion. In other words, Jesus was set right from having been made to be sin. Not because he sinned, but because he was made to be sin on the cross. He was cursed for us. And so something had to be set right for him. And resurrection did actually turn the trick, as we could say. It did the job. But it goes on to say, he was rectified by the Spirit, having been observed by angels. Those are the angels that announced his resurrection from the dead to the disciples. But notice this. He was proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, having been taken up in glory. 
That's the ascension and enthronement of Jesus Christ, the Christ event. Now, that Jesus was believed on in the world in these last lines of this hymn is a prolepsis of his being believed on by the world. That he was believed on in the world is a remarkable thing. That he was believed on in this present evil age is remarkable. But it's only an anticipation that he will be believed upon by the whole world, you see. That's why he says, I have on reserve for myself 7,000 men. That doesn't mean that God says, I got 7,000 people on my side. That was a prolepsis of the salvation of all of Israel. I can prove that all Israel will be saved. I got 7,000 as a prolepsis to that fact. If... The first fruits are holy, then the whole is holy. If the first fruits are holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the patriarchs are holy and God set them apart, then all Israel is holy. If the first fruits of the Spirit, that's the church, the prolepsis, then all humanity is holy. If the first fruits, which is Christ in resurrection, is holy and God has made him to be holiness for us, then the whole of humanity is holy. This is what Paul was thinking. And it hurts to try to think like Paul. And we'll never get up to what Paul thought because Paul had already had the confrontation that brought total comprehension. He met God face to face. The light of the glory of the knowledge of God. The knowledge of the glory of God shone right from the face of Jesus Christ. The greatest comprehension comes from confrontation. We will be like him when we see him. When we see him, we will know as we are known. When we see him prosopon, pros, prosopon, face to face, then we will know. We won't know until then as we are known. We'll know him in himself. We will see him with our own eyes and not the eyes of someone else who's seen him and tells us about it. We will see him with our own eyes. But until then, we have the scriptures and the spirit that bring us closer and closer to that confrontation. That's why we meet all the time here. That's why some of us even choose scriptures over stealers. Sometimes. Because our focus is that great now. Now, it's that time of year again, competition. The church, let me say this again, that Jesus was believed on in the world well, first of all, it means that God elicited faith through the gospel in people in the world. If God elicited the faith of some people in this world, you can be sure that that is simply a prolepsis or an anticipation that he will elicit faith in all the world. Because everyone's going to have the confrontation that brings total comprehension. For every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, especially those who pierced him. So, if the first fruits of the Spirit, where we see this word aparche again in Romans 8.23, are holy, and they are, because they're called saints in Romans 1.7. And because God has made, and this is really the heart of the matter too, 1 Corinthians 1.30, another height. This is God's doing, who has made Christ to be for 
us sanctification. Christ for us is holiness. Christ is the first fruits in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 23. Christ is the first fruits. If he is holy, then the whole is holy. And the whole is all of humanity. It is all of Israel. It is all the nations. It is the pleroma of the ethne. It is the pas of Israel. It is the first fruits are holy because the first fruits are Christ. The root is holy because as we're going to see, the root is Christ. I am the root and the offspring of David. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And as we have been finding out, that includes the broken off branches. You Gentiles shouldn't be proud, Paul said. You say branches were broken off of the olive tree that I might be grafted in. Paul says, but you fail to recognize that you're a wild olive tree growing out in the wild. And that branches of your tree have been broken off and grafted onto a cultivated olive tree, which is totally against horticulture. It's against nature. It makes Mother Nature mad. And I hate to tell you this and break it to you. There's no such thing as Mother Nature. But there is creation. He said, you've been grafted on to the cultivated olive tree, which is Israel. It's far more likely, and you better get this through your head, Gentiles, it's far more likely that God will take branches that were broken off from that cultivated tree and graft them back on. And that's what he's going to do. Because they're not going to continue in a state of unbelief forever. God will elicit faith in all of them eventually when they see him at the eschaton. Paul anticipates the salvation of some during the course of this evil age, which is remarkable. It's remarkable that some people are saved. That's remarkable. In this evil age, are you kidding? It's a miracle of God. It's a grace of God. It's unconditional grace. And it speaks to the fact that all will be saved when God is revealed in Christ in the parousia. So, the church or the present messianic community is called the first fruits of the Spirit, or the first to have the Spirit poured out on them to baptize them into union with Christ. But the prophet said, I will pour my Spirit out on all flesh. So, you who are the first fruits of the Spirit, Romans 8 23, are merely a prolepsis. We are the beginning, not the end. Of God's salvific plan for all. Now I'm only introducing this tonight. I'm going to have to say it four or five different ways before we get the point. I heard Ephraim say, turn me and I'll be turned. Reverse this trend and it'll be reversed. God, you've got to reverse the trend. Guess who Ephraim is? Israel. All Israel. Ephraim is a nickname for all Israel. I heard all Israel say, if you turn me, I'll be turned in Jeremiah 31, 18 and 19. God has to reverse the trend of the hardness of heart or it doesn't get reversed. This is God's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. And so the church or the present messianic community is the first fruits of the spirit, which is the spirit of God who is to be poured out on all flesh. Moreover, in Philippians 2, 10 to 11, 
which comes from Isaiah 45:23, every tongue will pledge allegiance to him or participate in his fidelity. God who saves by unconditional grace and who elicits faith by the gospel will save all by grace and elicit faith in all of humankind. So even if you want to make faith a kind of condition, and it isn't, we can agree on this, that all will eventually believe. And believing is, is more of, it isn't a condition for salvation, it's a proof that you've been saved. It's a gift of God given to the saved. We don't believe to be saved, but being saved, we're given faith. And you don't even, when we recognize how bad our sinful condition is, it's only because we've already been removed from it. That's the grace of God. So here, this is the closing. This means that not only Israel after the flesh, toy loipoi, the rest, as opposed to the remnant, not only will Israel after the flesh be accepted, the elect are already accepted in the beloved in Ephesians 1, 6. So this means not only Israel, all Israel after the flesh will be accepted, because the elect are already accepted, but that this acceptance will occur at the moment of resurrection from the dead, life from the dead, the bodily resurrection. And that resurrection is to life, not to a second death. That resurrection is to life, not to a second death, but to a judgment of rectification. Romans 4, 5, 4, 25, John 5, 28 and 29. And that means life in Romans 5, 18, not condemnation. So here's where we're going and we'll close Romans eleven sixteen. Now, if the first fruits are holy... And the word first fruits is aparke. We've already looked at it in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, and 23 with regard to bodily resurrection. If the first fruits are holy, so is the whole batch of dough from which it is taken. The whole batch of dough from which the first fruits, Jesus Christ, were taken is humanity at large, humanity, humankind. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. As Jesus said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. You say, what about the broken off branches? They're destined to be grafted in again. This is an airtight case. This is like Job 41.16. The scales on Leviathan are so close, no air can get between them. Just like double speed tapes now. There's no air between the words. There's no distance between the words. It's called, I call it the Job 41.16 technological revolution. The words are so close together, there's no air between them. And that's what I've always preferred is the the double speed. So having sold you on that, let's close. Father, we thank you that there are a million ways to say that you have loved the world so much that you gave your son 
But you didn't just give him so that he would die alone. You accompanied him. The Father has not left me alone, Jesus said. Giving your son, you gave yourself. What father could ever say, I gave my son, but didn't accompany the son in your heart with him? Many different ways to say, many different ways for God the Father to say to you, I love you. There's a million ways to do it. And so you who are future preachers, don't ever worry about running out of sermon titles. There's a million ways to say it. And we thank you, Father, for the opportunity to present a sacrifice